I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. You're on Team Human, our last best hope for peeps. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and I mean to plant a flag in the sand for conscious, willful people to gather, organize, empathize, and capsize the established order of things. Our opposition? Team Machine, Team Capitalism, Team Algorithm, Team No Team, I'm my own team. Being human is a team sport, so thanks for playing. Our guest today, all the way from Australia, world-renowned social scientist and systems thinker Marilyn Emery. You put somebody in a workplace which is viciously competitive. In order to survive in that workplace, what does that person have to do? You either compete in order to survive or you go under. Emery will be showing us how our social environments dictate just how social we can hope to become. It's time to build a world more hospitable to community. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and you're on Team Human. So welcome to Team Human 2018. We're doing lots of exciting things. Things are changing. I turned in the Team Human manifesto to Norton last week, and we're excited about getting that ready for publication. It takes a long time, probably won't be till winter of next year, but I will be sneaking out some stanzas from the book um, through this broadcast. I'm also going to be doing a lot of traveling, and that means live Team Human shows in a town near you. Uh, the first two are going to be in San Francisco at Gray Area for the Arts on February 16th and 17th. On the 16th, I'll be speaking with Annalee Newitz and Howard Rheingold. And then on the 17th, we've got Eric Davis and Lauren McCarthy. Um, these are going to be really interesting. I haven't done Team Human live live uh, before, but I'm really looking forward to involving the audience and uh, uh, building this community in a, in a real way, locally, in a lot of different locations. So there's more coming up. There'll be one in San Diego not too far from now and one in London in the summer. 
join the Patreon, join our Slack, um, share where we might be able to come. If you've got a, a town that wants a team human, let's get one going there. So becoming communitarian is obviously more fulfilling and sustainable than trying to maintain a society of hyper-individuals. But if history's any guide, it also appears to be less defensible. The aboriginal societies of Africa and the Americas were certainly guided by more collectivist and less individualist principles than Westerners, but this may have also been why they were so easily run down. You know, they had no industrialized military, no gunpowder, no aspirations for growth, you know, and they hadn't really encountered an extractive market-driven enemy before whose tactics and goals made really very little long-term sense. Why conquer a forest just to burn it down. So those of us seeking to retrieve some community and connection today, I think we do it with a greater awareness of the alternatives. You know, we can't retrieve collectivism by happenstance, but by choice. And this enables us to consciously leverage the power of grassroots connections, of bottom-up politics, of cooperative businesses, and then build a society that's intentionally resilient and resistant to the forces that would conquer us. Early internet enthusiasts, I was one of them. We had very little understanding of the way that the network's anti-commercial safeguards protected the humanistic values of its fledgling baby culture or rave kids. They didn't understand the real power of their ecstatic rituals, which wasn't just to get stoned out of their minds, which is powerful in its own way, but really the power was in reclaiming the public spaces in which we held those parties. The members of Occupy, well, we were a little bit too busy formulating lists of demands to realize that the bigger victory was to develop a whole new normative behavior for activists and a consensus-driven approach to administrating the demos. Likewise, the members of early communal groups, the aboriginal cultures that we really are trying to retrieve in some ways today, they were generally unaware of the real power of solidarity. They weren't collectivist by design so much as by nature. Members of a group, they just tended to believe the same thing. So their labor wasn't particularly specialized either. They were necessarily bound by their common location, their common needs, and their worldviews. It was really only after humans emerged as individuals with differentiated perspectives, conflicting beliefs, and specialized skills, competing needs, could we possibly comprehend collectivism as an act of choice, you know, as something that we have to work for. It's in that positive determination to be members of Team Human that we derive the power and facility to take a deliberate stand on our own behalf. I'm Francis Morlapay, and I'm on Team Human. I'm Brian Hughes, and I'm on Team Human. I'm Jonathan Larson, and I'm on Team Human. 
I'm Pia Mancini from Open Collective, and I'm on Team Human. I'm Danielle Buten, and I'm on Team Human. We're Team Human, coming to you alive from the Basement Laboratory for Digital Humanism at CUNY Queens and online at teamhuman.fm. Our guest today is Marilyn Emery, but before we play that conversation, I should probably fill you in. Marilyn is the partner of late Fred Emery, the founder of Open Systems Theory, who really applied systems theory to the management of organizations and government. Now, this was the idea that autocracies, you know, top-down organizations make for bad governments and companies. Their idea, in Maryland's language, really, is that by working together with collective responsibility, people can regain control over their own affairs in their own communities and organizations by cooperating to meet shared goals rather than competing or peeling off as individuals to do their own thing. So open systems theory, or OST as she now calls it, it's looking at how social environments influence our behaviors and the results that we get. People and social environments determine each other. When we don't recognize this or allow it to happen, then we get sick, either individually in depression or mental illness, or collectively and systemically as war climate collapse, and species extinction. So Marilyn has been continuing this work and figuring out really the practical steps we can take to make our organizations more democratic, more learning-based, you know, breaking the, the vicious cycle of de-skilling, of apathy and dissociation. Apathy, as she sees it, comes from not being in charge of the work you're responsible to perform. De-skilling, as it's called, comes from too much division of labor so that each person is responsible for such a little narrow and repetitive task that nobody gets the big picture. Nobody has context. Another terminology that we're going to use during this conversation is something she calls design principle one and design principle two. It's really DP1 or DP2. So DP1, design principle one, is really where the responsibility for coordination, control, and outcomes is located one level above where the work is being done. So DP1 is managing with like a manager on top and then all these people doing little things but not making decisions beneath them. And DP2, the one that, of course, we all in Team Human like, are self-managing groups who hold responsibility for their own work, their own coordination and control. The other terminology that we use a little bit is something called world hypothesis. And that's really just your worldview, how how a people, how a culture sees everything. And there's a bunch of different ones. There's formism, where you kind of see these ideals. There's contextualism, which deals with the complexity of lived experience. There's dissociation, which, as the name implies, it's when you have a lack of relation between one's welfare and the welfare of others. There's mechanism as a worldview, which we all know what mechanism is, that A causes B. There's organicism, where we believe that the world is a living organism, like one big family. And there's what she thinks we're in in America today, evangelism, which is this highly emotional response to uncertainty, which then involves, you know, some person or idea with which everyone identifies as some kind of a, a messiah. 
Messiah, you know, who will make us all feel better, solve our problems, and then lead them to the promised land. You know, the example she uses in her writing is uh, Princess Diana, the way everybody looked at her in England or maybe in America, but now um, the example is Trump. So you get the idea. Now, this episode also is a little bit rougher around the edges than most. We were trying to connect through to Australia and without our usual standards of engineering at play. But Marilyn is well worth the occasional strain it might take to understand everything that we're saying. So I hope you enjoy her as much as I do. This is a deep, deep thinker who comes back from all that work basically proving common sense, but in plain human language. It's an honor to get to speak with you. I guess the easiest way to identify you is as a a systems theorist. Usually, the generic term is just social scientist. Uh huh. I guess that's easiest. And then you employ a whole lot of different methodologies in understanding. Absolutely. Society. Yes. To start, I mean, with the with the biggie, I guess, and then because um, I'm calling you as much out of a kind of personal need as book writer need, as philosopher need, and then, of course, this show and everyone else. So I'll speak selfishly for the time being. And maybe I'm answering my own question and even asking it like that. But um, it seems to me like the, the most valuable thing that your work does is it helps reconcile the seeming uh, conflict between a person experiencing their autonomy as an individual and simultaneously experiencing their uh, connection and participation in a group. Do you know what I mean? It's, it always seems to us as if, well, I get to be an independent, autonomous person, and then I'm going to have to go off into the woods and be a Unabomber. Or I can be a member of a group, but I'm my individuality is, is subsumed by some kind of cult-like adherence to group mind. And you seem to say almost the opposite, that it's not a matter of one compromising the other, but one only exists with the other. Yes, that's, that's true. There's absolutely no conflict at all, Doug. In fact, there is no such thing as a totally isolated individual because when you get totally isolated individuals, they shrink. They become mentally ill and eventually they, you know, because we are innately group animals, we're social animals, we grow only according to the density of interconnections that we share with a group. One of, one of the key things that people need is a sense of belonging. And without that sense of belonging and without the support that goes with it, then people just start to wither away. But it's, I mean, these days in particular, you, you would think it's easier to have a sense of belonging in such a highly networked age as we're living in today with so many different groups and things to follow. But uh, it seems to me that people have less of a sense of, of belonging and cohesion than they have before. Yes, they do. That's absolutely true. In fact, we have data showing that sense of well-being intrinsically lonely really only started 
uh, not so long ago. And I think a lot of the misunderstandings that we have today come from, well, it's <laughs> it's a reality and it's also a theory. We have a very pernicious theory that that claims that the individual is the basic unit of society. But in reality, that's not true. The basic unit of society, if you want a viable, thriving society, is an individual in a group because it's only in a group that an individual can grow. So we have this theory that you might call rugged individualism that become very prevalent, particularly over the last 40 years or so, and it's done terrible damage to our society. Well, we could go all the way back to, uh, you know, the Renaissance and, uh, you know, uh, Leonardo da Vinci's, you know, Vitruvian Man, you know, uh, being alone as the almost the invention of this, you know, individual um, and that, that separateness, all of that kind of rapacious venture capitalism that... <laughs> That, that's culminated in this American rugged individual and Trumpism and, and whatever else we're experiencing. Yeah, I mean, America is known for it, that's true, but it's become increasingly common right around the world. And I think that, I mean, we've always had it, you know, you can go right back to mythology and the great, you know, Greek heroes or, or whatever, and, uh, uh, Nordic as well. But I mean, it was always it was always an extreme. It wasn't really believed as an everyday reality to be followed. And I mean, the more we've come to follow it, then the more we find that people have withdrawn into themselves and have, in fact, started losing parts of themselves. Mm. I mean, are there moments where human beings? experience both uh, their individuality and their membership and their and their connection to others? Oh, absolutely. I mean, if, if you look at well-functioning small communities, for example, you'll find that, you know, uh, an individual does something particularly wonderful or um, different or whatever it might be, and the group applauds. And you can see the individual psychologically growing in front of your eyes. Mm. I mean, that's a very common experience um, because we do live to a large extent by the, you know, the rewards and punishment that our people hand out to us. Right. And I suppose we've evolved for that, you know, our mirror neurons and the way our oxytocin and endorphins secrete once, you know, someone else is mirroring or nodding or clapping or their pupils get large. I mean, that's, this is biologic, not just cultural. Oh, absolutely. It's built into every cell in our body. Yes, we are, we are uh, born intrinsically, innately as people who need to be with others and to cooperate. And do you feel like your your sensitivity to this um, is mainly a result of your social science work, or do you think that living in Australia has has kind of opened you to what seems almost like a uh, more Aboriginal understanding of human relationships? Um, probably a bit of both, Doug. But um, seriously, this is not new. This this idea that people must be part 
of a supportive group has been around for centuries. If It's been there forever. If you look at all of the great social scientists through history, our psychiatrists in particular, you look at people like Eric Fromm, for example, they've all been telling us that we're on the wrong track, we're going the wrong way. I mean, yes, I have a lot of experience with Aboriginal people. I've lived and worked with them, but it's it's both sides of the equation. It's the lived reality, and it's also basic theory. You can't get away from the fact that we're not shags on rocks. We're not we're not isolated individuals. We we have a desperate need to be connected. And oh, and by the way, that doesn't mean a digital connection. That means a face-to-face connection. Right. In some ways, it seems as if our, our digital connections engender a, a almost a more of a divisiveness. That the the discrete qualities of digital media tend to to make us see each other as as more separate, even than than we did in in the good old-fashioned isolating analog days where at least it was it was wires and analog wave connections between people. There was more of a sense of, of resonance than there is now. I think that all of our um, communications by distance actually do distance us. Mm. I think digital it has made it worse. I'm not sure it's the actual binary um, quality of it, but... I think it's it's partly, again, well, one of the dimensions of it, I'm sure, is that we go on kidding ourselves. We go on kidding ourselves that when we type an email, we're talking to somebody, which is patently not true. We keep trying to equate spoken language and face-to-face with our, our by-distance technologies and and we've got enough evidence to know that that's simply not the case. And the longer we go on kidding ourselves, the further and further we get away from other people because we see it as equivalent, but it's a false equivalent. And I think we're in a in, we're in a vicious we're in a vicious cycle to some extent. I mean, you. It's interesting. You call people open systems, you know, that, that people are part of open systems. That You say each person is an environment. We're in an environment. We're in several environments, actually. But, uh, of course, we're open systems. We're open to a whole range of forces and influences of various kinds. How could we not be open systems? Well, we can strive to <laughs> to abandon our openness or to uh, to minimize it because we feel vulnerable. Yes, but again, that's a vicious cycle, you see. Because the more you open yourself up to other people and to the world, and the more you grow, and the more you feel vulnerable and you try to cut yourself off, then, of course, you shrink. And then as you shrink, you become more anxious and when you become more anxious you become more distrustful and then of course you get back into that whole cycle of cycle of increasing vulnerabilities the the only way out of this is to start re- recreating our old face-to-face communities 
So you you say in your in your writing that you know that we simultaneously want you know, autonomy, belongingness, and meaning. It feels like that that is a real nice triplet to keep in mind you know, of what of what human beings want. I mean, autonomy, a sense that that we have free will, I suppose, and some range of choice. You know, belongingness which we understand as, you know, to be part of this group and connected with others and social, then the trickiest one in some ways is this idea of meaning, you know, and you don't mean meaning as like that we need God or religion, but meaning as what, as, as purpose? Yes, meaning as, well, they're separate things, but uh, yes, purpose is a part of it. I mean, people are naturally purposeful. But we, we, I mean, you can make a joke out of it. You know, people are searching for the meaning of life, but in fact they are. People have a desperate need to find some meaning for their life, which is what, you know, basically they're going to do with it. But no, it's, it's not a joke. People do need to feel that they are of value to the world, that they have a role in the world. Right. I guess the question now, though, is are we going to uh, help people actually uh, have meaning or do we just create, as what seems to be the case, do we create the illusion of meaning? <laughs> you know, let's give people the sense of meaning so they'll, you know, so they'll do what we want. Oh, that doesn't work. It only, it worked, oh, sorry, well, it worked for a short term. It works, right. it works for a while. Um, you can kid you can kid people that they've got meaning in life, and I mean there there are many ways you you can do it. I mean we see people running around at the moment, um, you know, looking for the sweet life and engaging in all sorts of um, you know practices. I mean of which drug and alcohol use is only is only a part, but mm. des- desperately searching for new experiences and uses sources of excitement and all of those sorts of things, yes. Um, but they never find it through those things. That's the problem. It doesn't come. And, of course, then you're left with these um, even more damaged, even more disillusioned people who don't know what to do with themselves. Right. And they, I mean, it's interesting. I, I want to get into this notion of, the, of, of world hypotheses. Does someone who is forlorn, as, as you're describing, I mean, it, is that when a person takes on a, a, a more destructive world hypothesis? Yes, some of them definitely do. That's when some of them start, start searching for, you know, the strong leader, you know, the, the person who will lead them out of this mess into some, you know, more promised land, some great salvation. Right, and in that they get a sense of uh, of group of connection. Yes, that, that's right. They have to create that emotional connection that they've been missing, and people people will go to terrible lengths to try and get that connection. Right, whether it's as an individual, you know, pursuing bad relationships, or uh, you know, someone joining uh, uh, you know the Aryan youth in order to get to where a uniform and have some buddies, you know, it's what, whatever, you know, you could join, or you mean, or if you're lucky, I suppose you join a benevolent group that uh, helps bring you out of your, uh, 
out of your despair. Yes, hopefully. And I mean, that's what I say about bringing back the old sense of community. Because mm. those communities did work um, for collective, you know, jointly purposeful ends. And I mean, you know, whether it was to improve the community or to improve the physical environment or help the less advantaged or whatever it might be, um, those communities had a purpose which, you know, every individual could identify with in some sense or another. So that emotional connection was built into their everyday daily life. And, of course, that's, that's what these people who don't have that, once we started losing our communities, then we really, we really got ourselves into serious trouble. And no, right. and no amount of, you know, whiz-bang, you know, high-tech sort of stuff is, is, is going to get us out of it. They can't make some gorgeous virtual reality game where we all have avatars and dance around <laughs> together in a digital rave. That won't do it. No, <laughs> it's not going to do it. <laughs> it'll, it'll, it'll make you feel great for the amount of time that you're actually on it or in it or whatever you do with them. But um, at the end of it, you're just the same old lonely person you were in the beginning. And is that because of the, the the intrinsic experience is not because it's not organic, because it's not uh, because they don't know enough of about our nervous system to trigger everything or or more because it doesn't lead to changes in in your community and how you relate to others, uh, you know, on the ground? It, it has no ongoing life. When you're in it, you're in it. And, and when you're not. That's the end of it. There's no transfer effects. I mean, when you work with a group of people, things are always happening, things continue, um, you know, you don't there's, – there's an ongoing life of that connection. But um, a lot of these new digital experiences, you know, the, the fancy stuff, um, there's, there's no ongoing – um, there's no continuity into your, the rest of your life, the life you re lead in the real world. It, it, it just, it's not there. Right. Well, I guess you'd argue then in, in say, a, a Robert Putnam, you know, before bowling alone, in the reality we had in the early 1900s in America, that if you you're, go with your bowling team, but those are the same guys that maybe you work with or who are on... You live on the street where you live, and you'll see them at the laundromat or the Boy Scout meeting, and then at the at the at the foundry. So there's some sense of continuity between those relationships. Oh yes, of course, yes, and and the of course the more time you spend with your group in all different sorts of capacities, then of course the the more richly interconnected you become with all of them. And of course, the group grows, so you get the opposite to the the vicious closing down cycle. You get an opening up cycle. 
Well, but the, the people who make these technologies would argue, well, you know, that's all nice and good for back when humans were in their tribal stage and maybe knew 100 or 150 people, but now we have to fight global warming and other giant collective issues. So we need to learn how to uh, organize and find meaning in these much larger virtual uh, networks. Yes, but we don't live in virtual networks. We live in communities. We live in groups. And every large society consists of smaller units. So there's, you, can, you can live in a mass society and also be part of a densely interconnected group. There's no conflict there. The thing is, you do need the inter, the personal, emotional interconnections. Right. And even, I suppose, if you're going to participate in a global network of climate change uh, uh, activists, um, you're going to be you're going to perform better in that virtual group if you have a real life <laughs> set of social connections. You'll be a mentally healthy person. Absolutely, you'll be more confident, you'll know more about what you're talking about. I mean, one, one, of, the, one of the most disturbing things about the so-called technological revolution is that people know less and less and less. Right. They talk more and they know less. I mean, all the data that's coming in now shows that we're getting dumber and more ignorant by the moment. Now, that's not supposed to be happening. That <laughs> That's supposed to be the opposite of what's supposed to be happening. Right. I mean, the argument used to be, oh, well, people will get intelligent in a digital age, but they may lack wisdom or context. But now it turns out they're not even getting intelligent. <laughs> they don't even yeah. have more data at their disposal. <gasps> they're becoming less intelligent and they know less. <laughs> um, so we've got to be very, very wary of the salesman talk and the hype because, I mean, the data's coming in slowly, but it's coming in very, very consistently, and it's not nice. Right. I mean, you, you, you also bring up the point that, that human systems, meaning human beings and environments, constantly redefine one another. So I like when I think about, oh, well, human beings define their environment. You know, that sounds good. But the part that gets a little scary is to think that the environment is forming us, especially when it's a, you know, the environment of, you know, digital capitalism. If that's what's making me, um, I don't, <laughs> you know, is that, how do we, how do we maintain a good balance of interplay as we, as we, we and our environment define one another? Well, the first thing to do is to accept that it's a reality. I mean, you can't do much about it if you've got people saying, oh, no, no, my environment doesn't touch me. Mm. You know, I'm, I'm totally autonomous, you know, blah. Environments have always shaped us. How could, I mean, even from your physical environment. I mean, if you walk into a cold place, what do you do? You put a coat on or you put your jump right. on. And, of course, the same applies to our, our psychological and our um, technological environments. Of course they shape us. I mean, it's an absolute truism. I mean, if you, I mean, if you put somebody 
Just take a social environment, for example. You put somebody in a workplace which is viciously competitive. Now, in order to survive in that workplace, what does that person have to do? Well, they have to look out for themselves. So what does that mean? That means they have to compete. When you're in a competitive environment, you either compete in order to survive or you go under. Again, it's an absolute truism, so why don't people accept it? So if you want to break out of that cycle, you can't do it on your own. The only way you can do it is to actually work with other people to change that environment from competitive to cooperative. And then what's the high leverage point from which to do that, particularly if you don't feel like you're in control of the environment at all? Well, most people don't feel they're in control of the environment, and that's true because as an an individual, they're not. So when people decide they want to change their environment, they have to come together because as, as, as an individual, you have no power in that place. Unless, of course, you're the boss, but very very few people are the boss. And when you're the boss in a hierarchically competitive system, you're not about to want to change it anyway. So the only way you can do that is by meeting with other people, forming a group, having a set of goals, a set of purposes, and collectively working towards them. That's the only way to make change. Well, and that's in theory, that's what we're trying to do with, you know, team human, you know, and calling it a team, even though it's a little simplistic and may sound sort of agonistic in its construction, because if we're team human, then there's another team that we're playing against. But um, there is a team I feel like we're playing against, which is team non-human. It's the, it's the forces and systems that are erected, you know, whether intentionally or not, to um, uh, diminish our, our sense of autonomy, our sense of meaning, and our, our sense of collectivity. It's really digital capitalism. It's the enemy of Team Human would be a, a uh, iPhone app that's using the programming of a Las Vegas slot machine to keep a 12-year-old child addicted to, <laughs> to swiping at it. You know, yeah, that's, okay. not, that's not fair. Okay, I got it. Yeah, okay, all right. Yeah, there are many such forces arranged arranged against us. That's true. I mean, and part of it, I don't know if there's an easy way to explain it, but you talk about DP1 systems and DP2 systems. Yep. And it seems on a a certain level, this is this is the problem that we're we're dealing with is we're using DP1 sort of industrial age top down systems in a digital age where we need more DP2 responsive bottom-up or parallel or we need something more like a holacracy in our organizational structure. And I'm wondering if, because you probably had to explain it hundreds of times, if you could kind of explain the difference between a DP1 and a DP2 system where, where things get ruled by participants and, and, and why the, the latter might be more consonant with the moment that we're in. Yeah, well, I mean, the the basic the basic principle is very simple. The only way you can run an organisation effectively is to have some redundancy built into it, right? Which gives you some flexibility. There's only two ways you can get redundancy into a system. 
And we're talking human social systems here primarily. Mm-hmm. Although, I mean, engineers will tell you you can't run a you can't run an aeroplane without redundancy either. Right. But there's only two ways of getting it. You can either have more parts than the system requires at any time, or you can have more skills and knowledge built into every person than that person can use at any time. And the parts are people in human systems, of course. So you can either have more people than you need to do the work at any time, or you can build more skills and knowledge into every person. Now, when when you translate that into practical reality for people, what that means is that in the first one where you've got more parts, then you have to locate the responsibility for the system, for the control and the coordination of the system, at least one level above where the work is actually being done. So that that gives you your hierarchical supervisory system, mm-hmm. right? So it's the location of responsibility that becomes the critical factor for people. In the in the second in the second system, what you do is you re, you locate responsibility for coordination and control with the people who are actually doing the work, or I mean that might be the learning, it might be the planning, it might be whatever, but you you relocate that responsibility with the actual actors. Now what that means is that you are in our in our current in our current societies, what that means is that we would actually be giving back to the people their fundamental rights as responsible adult human beings. Because in the first system, in DP1 systems, that has been taken away from them. And that's where, right. that's where a lot of our problems come from as well. We've been, been depriving people of their right to say, I want to participate in that work. I want to have a say in what happens in my life, which is a political system. Everywhere you look, we've deprived people of the ability to take that responsibility. Well, we did it in business because we were in the industrial age where we wanted to find the lowest cost workers possible. And we employed systems that could, you know, so we could train someone who we find in the, in the, you know, the Home Depot parking lot, a, a, an undocumented alien. We've been doing this since the 12th century and bring them in, teach them how to hammer one nail in 15 minutes. And then you've got your worker, you know, the more, uh, uh, skill, autonomy, experience, decision-making a worker's doing, then the more dependent management is on that worker, on that worker's knowledge, um, and the more the worker can demand in pay, you know, the more easily the worker can can uh, leverage uh, his power in a, in a strike or in a, any sort of labor dispute. You know, this is similarly in, in democracy. I think that that politicians found it was easier to try to convince stupid people to vote for them than to uh, make intelligent arguments to thinking people. Absolutely. I couldn't agree with you more. 
But now that we're there, it's really hard to reverse it, especially when we have, you know, right now in America, it feels like we have a large population who feel that the kind of intelligence and autonomy that we're arguing for is itself some kind of an elitist, uh, creative class booby prize, you know, that it's taking them away from their gut and <laughs> and they're they're more instinctual uh uh, uh knee-jerk impulsive uh, spontaneity oh uh, that that's that's been that whole tendency has been growing over the last 40 or 50 years i mean it's 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 quite noticeable now and i think it's partly it's partly the result of the same set of forces that we've been talking about for the last half an hour doug Mm. You know, when you when you depersonalize everything, when you idolize the market, when you idolize the lone individual, when you've got isolated individuals, um, then you tend to accentuate, you know, the thought of the individual as as somehow a priority. But mm. it's only when you get accumulated knowledge that's been verified against reality that you know that you start to build up those bodies of knowledge and that wisdom um and and i mean the lone thought of, a, of an individual in a in a you know basement somewhere is until it's been verified and validated it's no more than a prejudice right the more you accentuate the lone individual then the more you elevate a prejudice to a knowledge. But it's only right. and right. I mean, on top of that, what you do is create a system, you create a culture uh, where, like our digital culture, where only one person does win, where we have power law dynamics in effect. And you know, and we end up in a in a in a world where a winner takes all um, culture and economic reality. Absolutely. That's we see we we've had what two hundred and fifty years or so now since the Industrial Revolution. And all of that time these destructive theories and practices have been growing. So we're we're at the very mature point now where we can see they're all coming home to roost. Mm. And and this elevation of opinion into knowledge is just one facet of that. Right. Then how do we move this from, you know, the sort of a DP1 nightmare scenario into, you know, what you would call a DP2 system, which is what we want, right? Well, I mean, it's, it's happening in bits and pieces around the world already. I mean, people intuitively know that what's going on is, is wrong and terrible. And they are forming, you can see we've got, we're getting little pockets of cooperative groups and action groups, very much like we got at the beginning of the 70s. Do you remember in the 60s and the 70s when we had mm -hmm. the cultural revolution and people were desperate to try and find new ways of doing things? That's being recreated at the moment. You can definitely see it around here, particularly in relation to things like land care and climate change and, you know, very big issues, social issues as well. People are spontaneously just coming together and saying, we've got to do something. Let's sit down and work out what we're going to do. 
And when they do that, they tend to organize. And I don't know if we've talked about it. They tend to organize in a in a DP two style, which would be more like a commons or a platform cooperative or. Yeah, yeah, it's a genuine group of equals. That's probably the best way of saying it. There are no status differences. You have different people doing different things because they have different skills and experience. Um, but it is genuinely one level groups who um, have decided on their set of purposes and they go out and make action to meet them. Can a company work like that? Of course it can. Of course it can. So there's no bosses. There's just specializations. Yes, you ha- you can have specializations. Now, you've got to remember that face-to-face DP2 has physical limits on it, which is where people get start to get confused. We've got self-managing groups out there in industry with up to, I think it's 24 members, but that just about looks like the physical limit. So in large organisations, what they do is they, and this is all designed by the people themselves, um, you end up with what we call a hierarchy of functions. So you don't have you don't have three thousand people making overall policy all the time. You might only have half a dozen people, but they're making policy at the overall organisational level. And then you will have people on, well, (laughs) the problem is we get caught up by language here because they're not actually underneath. But we have other people working in self-managing groups who are doing the work that enables that policy to happen, right? Mm -hmm. So you've got people working at different levels of function, but nobody tells other people what to do. That is worked out by negotiation. That is worked out according to the rules that they themselves set and according to the purposes they want to see happen. So it's perfectly possible. They're out there working on the ground. They always have been, of course. But no, it's not difficult to bring them in and they work much better than the DP1s do. And it sounds to me like you're... I mean, you've lived a couple of decades longer than me, I guess, at this point, but you're uh, maybe more hopeful than I am as well in the capability of human, the human species and human systems to be resilient and, you know, and to, to adapt to this uh, new environment rather than just to, to move into, you know, what you called uh, evangelicism, which isn't really just being evangelical, but, you know, this sort of uh, desperate need for a single leader and a more almost... Uh, kind of a, a fascist, faith-driven society. Oh, yes, yes. I I think that's um, a symptom of where we're at, where we were at at the moment after this this last couple of hundred years. I think it's um, something we probably had to experience and go through, but I don't think it's anywhere going to be a widespread experience. Hmm. I mean, I, I know it's happened in America and, and it's happened in Britain and it's happening in Turkey, for example, as well, um, with Erdogan. But um, no, I don't think we're all going to go through it and I don't think it's necessary. I'm quite hopeful that we will, well, I think we are already seeing the error of our ways and I think 
there's enough people out there to see it and recognize it that we'll get on top of it. Mm. As I've said, you know, people look around them. People aren't stupid, you know. People look around them and they go, oh, my God, we don't like this. Let's do something about it. That's the way people are as well. Well, that's a nice, I think that'll be the title of this episode. People aren't stupid, you know, <laughs> which, which in some ways says it all. It's um, true. People aren't stupid. We just act that way. <laughs> Well, we just play stupid. <laughs> yeah, we play that way on TV. Uh, yeah. So thanks so much for doing this. I really want to uh, also just you know, thank you for your work and your your clarity. I really appreciate it. And uh, I will find you again, and we can. Uh, I'll just call you on the phone uh, so we can talk. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yes, I enjoyed it, Doug. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to Team Human. Our guest today was Marilyn Emery. We'll be back in the Basement Media Squad here at the Laboratory for Digital Humanism again next week with new strategies for human intervention in the machine. This show was produced and edited by Stephen Bartolome. Come visit us at teamhuman.fm where you'll find more information about our supporters and guests, the work they're doing, resources to get involved, and ways to find the others. Team Human. Our last best hope for peace. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.